for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. I think we don't run clinical trials very well uh, in that I think we can figure out that people have not responded to their medication or their treatment choice before 12 weeks and 12 weeks is the generic time point of we watch them for 12 weeks. So is it an epileptic seizure or is it a functional seizure? Well, that is one of the questions commonly looked into by my guest this week, neurologist Dr. Wesley Kerr. He's a clinical epilepsy fellow at the University of Michigan, US, and a machine learning statistician. Wesley tells us all about how he researches and helps treat people affected by both epileptic and functional seizures, and explains how research shall likely lead to earlier, more accurate diagnoses in people who can actually be affected by either well both of these types of seizures or one or the other stay tuned to learn more and if you haven't already and if you would like to do subscribe to the channel together let us improve outreach epilepsy awareness understanding and research wesley or dr wesley can you please tell us about yourself (laughs) and the work that you do and how that benefits uh Uh, people affected by the epilepsies and humans in general. I am currently a uh, clinical epilepsy fellow at University of Michigan. Um, Before that, I did my neurology residency at UCLA, and I did an MD-PhD there. Um, Clinically, I see people with seizures. um, And in research, um, I think about statistics, and I also think about how do we make medical decisions better, better based on data. Um, I do a lot of things with functional seizures, otherwise known as psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Um, Some of the big things that I've done before are figuring out how do we identify people with functional seizures earlier um, with the supposition that if we do it earlier, people might respond better to treatment, have less impact on their quality of life, um, that sort of thing. Um, I like doing the health services things about talking about impact of care, the statistics is really where my training is. So if you read the method sections of uh, my articles, you realize, hey, I actually have training in that part. So you're like a mathematician, really, as well. My PhD is in biomathematics, so. There we go. So you see um, people affected by non-epileptic seizures and epileptic seizures um, face-to-face, one-to-one, um, as well as doing uh, research in the background. Is that right? Correct. Um, Technically, my full-time job right now is um, seeing patients, and then I do research on the side. Uh, next year, I will be doing 80% research and 20% clinic. Oh, how come? Um, What's happened there? Why the change? It's uh, the process of clinical training. Um, you need to get specialized by doing all epilepsy all the time or all seizures all the time. Um, and then as you get further in training, you can uh, sort of buy yourself out to do more research time. Is it kind of your favorite? research over. I like the balance. I think uh, being able to talk to people and seeing each person's story about how seizures affect their life makes me 
from the research side say, hey, how do I address that? How do I make that better? Um, so the research addresses the clinical question. The reason for the disconnect of, hey, that's 80% research is research takes a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It takes a lot of uh, investment as well. <laughs> For that reason, exactly. Yeah. So figuring out the good questions, figuring out how I can help um, overall on a population scale and instead of just on an individual scale, um, that balance is something I like. Yeah. And how did you get into this territory of extracurricular brain activity, I guess? Um, I was always interested in how the brain controls your actions and what you do in the world. So I was sort of interested in psychology-ish. Um, and then as I got interested in math and data, um, I got mentors and in figuring out a PhD project, they were like, what is a condition that we get a lot of data from? And immediately people thought about, hey, pre-surgical evaluations for epilepsy, we get a lot of data. And how do we process that data? Um, so that's where I sort of came to epilepsy. Um, how I came to, to functional seizures is the first question in all of that is, do you have epilepsy? Um, and there wasn't a huge amount there. Um, so I was like, hey, I can use this data and I can answer that question and actually have a lot of good impact there. Um, and do other things of saying, hey, I can also address the epilepsies. Um, but my initial slight distraction on figuring out, hey, do people have epilepsy or not, has turned into a, a lot of my work. Um, I do other work in epilepsy as well. That's so cool. And do you ever find out, I guess, alongside with a patient or with a family that, sorry, mate, but actually you don't have epilepsy. You have non-functional seizures or the other way around or, or both mm -hmm. at the same time. Great news. <laughs> do you have to present that to people? Yeah. I do have to present that to people. Um, I am uh, a little biased in that I have always worked in a place with a video EG unit. Um, so most of the time my diagnosis is based on, hey, I have seen your seizure and I know what it is. Um, in people where I'm concerned about it or I'm not sure if they have epilepsy or not, I come from the school of thought of saying, this can be epilepsy, I'm not 100% sure. Um, so I preface that with the patient so they know, hey, we're doing this, this is the best decision. But if this happens, I wanna do something else to make sure that we're making the right decision. Um, an example of that um, from a patient recently is a young lady with uh, seizures tends to happen at night, which is weird for functional seizures. Um, but sh she was on her third anti-seizure medication because she started one, got side effects, started another, got side effects, started the third, was doing sort of okay on that. And the question was, hey, let's make sure you have epilepsy um, because we are doing a lot of things and this is relatively difficult. We want to make sure we're targeting the right thing. Um, she ended up having epilepsy, but a lot of people were unsure. Right. It's great that you're addressing this kind of well, you're at the forefront because, for instance, I know somebody who has epilepsy, um, but also has unfortunate seizures. And then when um, and has had pretty hard time of late. And then after I, I, don't know, I don't know whether they had I can't remember how he found out, actually, but of late anyway, he's found out that his seizures are primarily functional seizures and he was embarrassed and upset. And I sense this a lot in many communities. Like, oh, if you don't have epileptic seizures, well, then kind of get on with it. It's nothing, which is so not the case. Absolutely. Um, I think they're all seizures. They all have a big impact on life. They're all involuntary. <laughs> right. Um, and it's just we need to treat them differently. Um, 
And the first step to treating them differently is figuring out, hey, are these the seizures that respond to medications or surgery? Um, or are these the seizures that we need to do therapy? Um, I just think of these as two different treatment modalities and targeted towards the correct thing. Do you find that sometimes if people have therapies for non-functional seizures, that can actually benefit them in regards to the epilepsy as well, assuming they have the epilepsy too, because it can help chill people out and, I don't know, just readjust, make lifestyle changes that impact positively impact the rest of their life? A fun fact is the book that Kurt LaFrance started with when he was creating the sort of standardized kind of behavioral informed therapy was originally developed for epilepsy. There we go. I think stress factors and dealing with sort of general mental health and brain health can help seizures. Um, I'm pretty sure it actually reduces seizure frequency. Um, if you address these things, get better sleep, have better stress coping mechanisms, it won't make you seizure free, but it will help a lot, of, a lot of things. Well, although you say that some people I've heard actually can become seizure free if they chill out, it depends on severity of the epilepsy, I guess, and, and of course, person's individuality, biologically, neurologically, etc. But that is known, right? That can occasionally happen. It, it can happen. Um, I think of it as um, sort of levels of disease right. um, where you have epilepsy. Generally, you need an anti-seizure medication to control that epilepsy. And then there are things that you can do on top of that. Um, the medication is sort of stronger um, than all these other things, but that doesn't mean these other things also have effects. What would you say is the most unusual thing you may have come across um, with an individual with any type of seizure? That, what's the most surprising thing so far? You might need to say more than one thing, but... I think there's lo lots of interesting and surprising things. I always like hearing the stories of what, what was happening around when the seizures happened and how it impacts people's lives. Um, I currently have a um, great educational case for people. Um, where we had a lady who came into the video EG unit um, and has both epilepsy and functional seizures. Um, and her epilepsy is not particularly well controlled in that uh, she has absent seizures and they would happen like every three or four minutes. In the unit, she had uh, a lot of these and we're like, okay, we know, know what these are. Um, we need to change medications for those. And then she had some functional seizures. Um, and what's nice uh, from some semi-research and uh, clinical perspective is she was having a functional seizure and then in the middle of it she had an absence seizure and all of it stopped and then after the absence seizure it just continued um huh so <laughs> it was very interesting showing hey these two can coexist in the same patient um and they influence each other um one thing that i am working on is building good videos of uh, people with seizures uh, to be able to train people to say, hey, this is epilepsy, this is not, uh, this is both. Um, and I'm pretty excited because she's letting me use that video too. That is really exciting. I think and that information will be, of course, of use to professionals like yourself, but also to people with the diagnosis. If they can find, sometimes I think things, information takes a little bit of a long time to trickle down from the top. And sometimes, uh, researchers will be a bit nervous about how to convey or communicate that information to us lot but I think often we can take a lot more than than people think and that is even like that is not something which is going to say by the way dude got a cure for you now it but it's more isn't this interesting and that is a positive thing for us I 
my opinion anyway, to learn more about these shifty brain activities. And the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, right? But I do think also that that leads to greater interest again in research and hopefully should we get governments on board? More funding too, hint everyone. (laughs) Hopefully. Um, What I like to do is I like to explain why I make the decisions that I'm making. Uh Um, And some of that is showing the patient the data and saying, hey, Say take I've I've seen a, a lot of people with first lifetime seizures uh, recently, um, so people with something that sounds like a seizure, and then they have things on EEG that say um, they're interactive epileptiform discharges, which I like to call sparks. Um, oh, epilepsy sparks. And say, hey, <laughs> if you've had one seizure and you have these, this gives me enough confidence that I feel like you should be on a seizure medicine, and this is why. Um, being able to sort of say that data, I think, helps people say not just like, hey, you had a seizure, you need meds. Um, it helps them understand why they need the medicine and hopefully makes them take the medicine a little bit more. Um, we'll see. Do you know what? I spoke to somebody very recently who'd been recently diagnosed with an epilepsy but had received no information about why they thought she should be taking these drugs a bar oh you've had these seizures a couple of seizures and the thought was well maybe if i just you know adjust my lifestyle a bit then i'll be fine so i'm going to try diet and i'm going to try all these other different things and see if that works now i actually understand why this person was thinking that way because if she doesn't know much about the epilepsy and her specific case then it makes sense. So what you're doing, I think, is really powerful and more clinicians should do, despite us, you know, not having enough time necessarily <laughs> to do that. That's a problem, right? I absolutely agree it's a problem. Um, a lot of what I've been trained and of what I've noticed is that it doesn't really take that much more time. Um, when we are taking the difference between five and seven minutes, that's a problem. Um, but I live in an academic world where my follow-up visits are 30 minutes. I often don't need that whole time. And I'm actually usually viewed as a fast person um, because when you let the patient make the decision and you have, you are comfortable talking about these things, it goes pretty quickly of like, oh, you have seizures. This is why it makes me feel like it's an epileptic seizure. It's not fainting. It's not a functional seizure uh, because of these factors. And I see, say, these sparks on EEG that really tells me I, you, you need a seizure medicine. We can talk about which one. And there's a bunch of them. Um, when you get comfortable saying these things, people go relatively quickly. Um, there are some great studies about how to take a, a patient history um, and asking open questions. And the difference between asking open questions um, and asking closed questions is that open questions usually are faster huh. um, because patients sort of figure out what's important. And they've told this story a bazillion times. If you give them maybe like 20 seconds more, um, they will tell their whole whole story and you just need to fill in those little details that uh, they missed as compared to giving a patient maybe 20 seconds to tell the initial story and then asking a whole barrage of different other detailed questions that may or may not be there. It's an interesting perspective. Do you find by asking them open questions as well that enables them to give potentially details about comorbidities, which can be significant with these when you have different types of seizure? I think it lets the patient drive the encounter and saying what is most important to them. Um, sometimes patient comes home to seizures and 
I ask open question of like, okay, uh, what would you like to talk about? Or how can I help you today? And they talk, don't talk about the seizures. They talk about all the me medication side effects. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask you like how many seizures you've had. Um, but that tells me, okay, we need to switch medicines or we need to talk about that. Um, and that helps me address the patient where they are and help, help the most um, as compared to being like, okay, you're on a medicine. How many seizures have you had? What's your side effects? Ignoring comorbidities. Um, there's some good data saying if we address comorbidities, it impacts quality of life more than seizures for people with medication-resistant epilepsy. So letting patients say, hey, this is my big problem is good. Totally agree. But, you know, personally, I'm thinking about, um, yeah, not amazing neurologists I'd had in, in this relatively distant past who would just ask me, right, how many seizures you had? And it was like ticking a box or not. When, But when I had brilliant um, neurologist is how you doing that would allow so much more information to come you know to come out and yes just like you say the yeah, number of seizures the severity if I could remember them obviously um that's another issue actually how do you deal with that how, what's your method of trying to actually establish what type of seizures people are having and assuming they're not in a telemetry unit obviously but um you know and how frequently they're occurring and stuff like that how do you get around it I think about it as if we're not sure, uh, we try to figure out what's the best data we can get, um, whether that be witnesses um, or that be like seizure monitors, things like that. I haven't used a lot of seizure monitors. Um, or And I just say the uncertainty to the patient as well of saying, hey, you've had these things that maybe sound like seizures. I'm not sure they are. Our options are add medicine switch medicine or stay the same um what do you feel like what can we do um and then we'll make this decision we'll follow up and see hey did things get better did they stay the same what is that uncertainty um this is my whole like ask the give the patient the options and figure out like which way do we need to go and how does it work if the patient is has a pretty severe intellectual disability um, and struggles to communicate their own feelings and experience. Uh, how does how do things work then? They always have a decision maker. Right. So a parent, a caregiver, um, where you can have this discussion as well. Um, and then we're talking about have things gotten better for them overall um, as compared to have things gotten worse. Um, a lot of the time in people with severe cognitive impairment, our goal isn't necessarily seizure freedom. It's how do we improve quality of life? Um, so as scary as SUDEP is and SUDEP is real, um, we talk about, hey, there is this risk. Are we okay with this risk if we think that this is going to make this better? Um, and I think making that risk-benefit discussion is important, um, both for the patient to understand what the risks and benefits are, um, also from a liability standpoint. Because... Um, if like you as an epileptologist, um, they're on seizure medicine and you have this discussion and you document, okay, so things are staying the same even though they're having seizures. Um, and then someone dies with pseudo. Someone goes back and says, hey, you didn't change their meds. You knew they were having seizures. You didn't do this next step. And the discussion in the room was, well, we can take this next step, but do we want to? And these are the pros and these are the cons. And you made the mutual decision to say, okay, we're going to wait. Um, not take this next step yet. Um, that 
it's better serving the patient and it also is better for liability. <laughs> and I guess you record all this stuff just to cover yourself and yeah. Um, and, and in the US, our notes are very long in that we <laughs> say, talk about, could do this, could do that, made the mutual decision to do that. It doesn't take that much longer to write it down, but uh, my notes are relatively long. <laughs> So how has all this then influenced your choice of project that you're going to be putting 80% of your time into? Tell us more about your project. I am doing a lot of things to figure out um, how certain are we about diagnoses and how do we triage to say when we should make each decision. Um, Something I'm working on right now is we have, so I developed a score to say based on the patient history, Um, this person has this likelihood to have functional seizures versus epilepsy. Um, And one of the projects that I have that's coming out pretty soon is asking people to look at patient histories. You read the patient history, you may or may not get my score, you look at the EEG and the MRI, and then you get told what the video EEG result is. So the function of that project where you look at each of the pieces of data and you ask people to say what is do they have functional seizures? Do they have epilepsy? What type of epilepsy do they have? Is figure out, okay, how certain are we at each stage? Because if based on history, we're only like 50% accurate, even if you're an epileptologist, um, that says, hey, we need more data. And this is the the numbers saying this is the benefit of the data. Um, And you can get to the point of saying, okay, we have all of these things. We don't necessarily need video EEG because we are so certain. Um, Based on all of the things we see, or we really need video EG in this case because it's it's not certain. Um, getting numbers on that, I think, are beneficial. Um, I need to convince some other people to that that is also beneficial. Maybe give me some money to pay people to look at these cases. Yeah. Um, hint, hint. But mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, that is one of the things I'm working on. Give us one more thing. What, what's another thing you're working on? Um, this one's uh, semi-public already. To step into my other hat of being a statistician, um, I think we don't run clinical trials very well I, in that I think we can figure out that people have not responded to their medication or their treatment choice before 12 weeks, and 12 weeks is the generic time point of we watch them for 12 weeks. Um, so something I am looking at is using old trial data and saying, are there certain criteria to say, after two weeks, we know this person has not responded to the treatment they were assigned to. The additional 10 weeks on this same treatment don't benefit anyone. Uh, They have seizures, they have risks of seizures, including SUDEP, if they don't respond to the medication or treatment. Um, So we should do something different. Um, Either let them leave the trial or let them switch treatments. And I have some prelim data saying that if we let them switch treatments, it actually helps the trial and helps uh, the patient. Because say they were randomized to placebo or an ineffective dose of a medicine. And in two weeks, you figure out, okay, that is not effective for that person. And then you switch to a different dose or um, an active treatment. And then you have another subject on that active treatment so you can do pairwise statistics and say, okay, this person didn't respond to the this one, but responded to the other one. So you actually can compare their relative seizure frequency, um, and you're getting data really where you care about it. Um, and that 
the prelim stuff that I've looked at improves the statistical power of trials by about 20%, which we spend a lot of money on trials. Um, if we can do it more efficiently, say 20% more efficiently, uh, that would be very good. That would be brilliant. And also, this sounds great. We've already you've just said, but that it benefits you guys, people actually doing the research and people in the future, but also the people involved in the trial, or at least some of the people involved in the trial, if they're not on placebo. It, well, exactly. Um, because we don't... So one of the, the criticisms behind this is that if you don't watch people for long enough, then you don't see adverse effects. And for adverse effects, you need to say, what were the adverse effects on the placebo and what were the adverse effects on the treatment? Um, you really care about adverse effects of if people respond to the medicine. Like clinical practice, you don't keep someone on a medicine uh, that they don't respond to. Um, so some people will respond to the placebo by natural variability. So they will stay on until the point where we say that they have not responded. And some people will switch to the active treatment. And if the active treatment is better, then you will get more and more people on the active treatment and get more data showing the treatment is better. And what are the adverse effects? You'll get less data on the placebo um, if it's not particularly effective, but you will get enough to be able to make that comparison. What would you say about long-term effects of drugs though? For instance, you know, we've got the sodium valproate debacle, um, you know, so many things. Obviously, that's something that would need more long-term research, right? Correct. Um, and I think about that as I'm asking people to switch medicines when they haven't responded. If someone's on a medicine um, and then they're responding, then I think the ethics makes sense of saying, hey, we have a benefit. Let's verify we're not having a cost and st keep them on that medicine for a longer period of time. Um, and then we see the long-term effects. Um, I find it a little ethically questionable. Um, I, my statements are generally stronger. Um, when I know that someone hasn't responded from seizures and then people say, hey, we want to watch them longer because we want to see if they also have other adverse effects. And I'm like, this does not benefit the trial. This does not benefit the patient. Why are we doing this? Uh, <laughs> but that is my semi-bias. It makes me think of how loads of people still today, unfortunately, can be on a drug, not, people not involved in trials, for decades, and it doesn't work. And they're just like fobbed off. Um, yeah, so this will benefit these people too. It's, ex it's even more of a reason for clinicians to say, I don't really have any excuse. Even if epilepsy is not my specialization, if I'm more focused on stroke, if I'm more focused on whatever, if somebody's on a drug for this long and they don't respond, let's try something else. A lot of the question is, if they're not responding, it's the... The knee-jerk is, let's add something. Yeah. Um, so it is very important to figure out what medicines we choose early on um, so that you don't have these long-term side effects. Um, and it's always a little scary to say, hey, um, they're still having seizures and we're going to take off a seizure medicine. Um, in the U.S., I'm a little biased um, because... Uh, the caveat I'll say to this is that people are defined as medicine, medicine resistant uh, for epilepsy after they have had appropriate doses of two anti-seizure medicines, which means that you've tried two things 
you should send someone to an epileptologist because one, we should think about surgery or other sort of VNS, RNS, DBS, those sorts of things. But two, the epileptologist is super comfortable saying, hey, I'm going to switch you from one to the other because that hasn't worked. Um, and these are the more complicated patients. So send people over to epileptologists more um, and that'll be good. Part of my interest is sort of delivery of healthcare, um, delayed diagnosis of functional seizures, also delayed to surgical evaluation for people with epilepsy, because we have some data out of UCLA and some other places saying if we do surgery for people that are medicine resistant earlier, they do better. Um, and there's a big disconnect between, hey, refer after two, two medicine failures um, as compared to refer after four or five, which is more often what we see. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefit to saying, hey, if you're a stroke doctor, you're a general neurologist, someone's on their third or fourth medicine, it's okay to say, hey, I'm going to send you to a seizure specialist because you you should think about some other things. And the seizure specialist might say, hey, we can try this different medication. Um, and we might get some good, good response. We don't have to do surgery. Or we're going to think about doing surgery because I think that's going to be the best bet for you. Yeah. Is it really that hard? Why don't more people do that? <laughs> I think there's a lot of psychology behind it. Uh, people feel like uh, referring to a subspecialist is like a little bit of a failure. Hmm. Um, so they're like, mm. I did wonder. Um, and I mentioned surgery. People are always scared of surgery. I think surgery, neurosurgery for a lot of things is scary. Um, you do not want to be in a car accident where you need neurosurgery. That is not a good thing. The neurosurgery we do for epilepsy is very different. Um, we talk a lot about what are the costs of this surgery? What are the potential benefits? And we just won't do surgery if it's going to ca cause too many problems. Um, so it's a longer process and it's a more thought out process than other neurosurgery. Um, so I think both uh, neurologists are scared of it and patients are reasonably scared of it. If you get into the office of someone who's an epileptologist that does this, then you can say, hey, these are the things. What are your worries? Um, I can talk to you about what we do to say, hey, that's a legit worry. Um, we're going to look into that. Or, no, that's not really a big thing. <laughs> no, that's not a legitimate worry. Be quiet. Be <laughs> Maybe not like that. <laughs> um, and it, as an example, um, I have a patient who I'm doing um, presenting for a surgical evaluation on Thursday um, who's had surgery for uh, a brain cancer before. And his concern was, hey, it took me three months to learn how to walk after I had my last brain surgery. Um, and my response was, okay, we know where that was. If that's going to be a thing, I'm not going to say you should have surgery for epilepsy. Um, the surgery for epilepsy, we will look and see, okay, this is where the motor area is. If we are away from that, we're not going to impact that. Um, then we'll say, hey, we, we can do surgery um, because we can say, this is in two different places. The surgery for cancer is sort of like, take out the cancer and then we see what happens afterwards. Well, it's always a choice, right? But it perhaps seems like slightly simpler choice. Uh, I think surgery for cancer is easier because it's a, hey, cancer, cancer, bad. We should take out cancer. <laughs> right. um, surgery for epilepsy, it, we do a lot more thinking about it um, and talk about risks and benefits a lot of, hey, is the epilepsy in a place that has function? 
Um, and if we can't take it out, then what are other options we can do? Um, because taking it out would cause detriments to important function. I've said in other podcasts, I just found this choice so simple for surgery. But I guess I had a great neurologist and I knew the potential impacts and the likelihood of success and my risk of SUDEP anyway. So just like do it. And, and also the mental health aspects. If I'm so depressed, I don't want to be alive right now, then just like flip and do it, man. Like what, you know, and I don't know, I'm a bit, maybe a bit black and white, but it really, and, and also, I don't know, like the, the thought of pain surgery for me was more, yeah, more exciting than scary because wow, like the people doing it are absolutely amazing and the tech that's used and, and the guys, yeah, my neurologist said, well, can we do a video? I said, yeah, sure. As long as I get a copy. And he's like, what? But <laughs> maybe I think if people with the epilepsies or carers are able to learn a bit more about the epilepsies and it as a sort of a, not a topic, but something to learn about, like how diverse the epilepsies are and how, and what goes on behind the scenes with people like yourself, the sciences behind it, it kind of, makes it something else it should be seen i think anyway a bit more like the cancers it's a completely different disease don't get me wrong but it's something that needs to be treated we want to prevent people from like you know kind of dying and people from you know having all these seizures and the negative so many variations of negative aspects that can come with the epilepsy and sometimes you know if you look at it like that i think surgery can be like oh okay i'd have my appendix out too I know it's different, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people, they find comfort in community um, where um, I point people to the various different charities and the various different epilepsy communities. And a lot of people find benefit from that of saying, oh, I'm not the only person in the world that has epilepsy because uh, there is a stigma. Um, and that stigma is large. Um, we work to address it. And part of working to address it is showing people with seizures that other people have seizures. And um, something I say a lot of the time is, say you have seizures once a week. You have all those other six days a week to do all the things you need to do. Um, so trying to maximize the time that you have and the quality that you have and showing that you can do a lot of things. Um, it's just we are trying to address those things that happen sometimes. Yeah, I know a neurologist who developed epilepsy. It's amazing. He had encephalitis and then just like, and then got, and he had to retire because it uh, affected his memory quite a bit. Um, but he talks about it quite a lot. I'll put a link to it under, under our recording because it's really, really interesting. But it's a perfect example that anybody can uh, develop epilepsy at any point in time and I bet there are heaps more clinicians doctors nurses etc who develop it not that you hear about it things happen, happen. Speak, right? um, there are mm -hmm. uh, good stories behind hey this is how people have this thing happen in, in their health and they address that um, and they either continue practicing or they stop practicing because they can't um, there's a, a lot of things that people do um, I think destigmatizing things is a very long process, um, but having a community for the people that like the community um, helps that. The uh, functional neurological disorders people very much um, have a building community, um, and which is helpful for a lot of people. Um, and I think that stigma is giant as well. 
um, we talked about um, the person you know who felt like they were a failure because they had both uh, epilepsy and functional seizures, and they were figured out most of their seizures that were impacting their life were functional, and they felt like a failure. It's not a failure. It's just, hey, we need to address that in a different way. Um, changing medicines, having side of, more side effects to medicines, uh, is not going to change the frequency of seizures. We need to figure out how do we help things get better. And if that's not medicine, that's going to be different therapy things. Mm -hmm. That's how we do it. Yeah, or changes in lifestyle sometimes. I've had way fewer tonic-clonics since lockdown. <laughs> well, actually not one over lockdown because I've got more sleep. You know, so sometimes things like that can really impact both types of seizures and things. Anyway, so you have a cool website, which everybody is Seizure Disorder Center, and that's T-E-R, um, researchgroup.org. Um, where else should people look if they want to find out more about you? Uh, Twitter is the thing. Of course, where uh, we met. <laughs> uh, Wesley T. Kerr. Um, I think those are the main, main places. That website I need to update. <laughs> By the way, everyone, just looking at the website again now, I can see you've got um, somebody called Jamie Fusner, is that, if that's how I pronounce it, psychiatrist. I love that you're working directly with a psychiatrist. Again, it's you know, just further confirming that very close link between psychiatric disorders and, and the epilepsy, or, or seizures, should I say, types of seizures. I think that's really good. So everybody do check that out. That's under the people on the people page. Um, well, thank you so much, Wesley. You're an absolute star. Thanks for making this so interesting for us. I'm totally going to be checking you out on ResearchGate or something, reading your papers. And we look forward to hearing about your new projects, plural, very soon. It was great talking with you. I like it. <laughs> if you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.